Section 5 of The Court and Character of King James, whereunto is now added The Court of King Charles, by Anthony Weldon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Court of King James, Part 4 Now was all, as they believed, quiet and in the depth of security, and the Earl and Countess began to carry their loves more openly and impudently, but they understanding that the world did talk very loudly and broadly of this adulterous meeting, it must from that ground proceed to an adulterous marriage, as well to the wronging a young nobleman as to the dishonour and shame of themselves. But they must needs go whom the devil drives. Yet know they not how, and somely to effect this, but by making the king a party in this bawdy business, which was no hard matter to effect for the king's eye began to wander after a new favourite, being satiated with the old. Therefore, for the bringing this bawdry to a marriage, the bishops must be principal actors, as I know not in what bad action they would not be lookers-on, and the bishop of Winchester, an excellent civilian and a very great scholar, must be the principal, for which his son was knighted, and will never lose that by-title of Sir Nullity Bilson. For by a nullity of the first marriage must the second take place. For the canvassing whereof there were many meetings of the bishops and the prime civilians, in which there wanted no bribes from the lord, lady, and their friends, to have this nullity brought to pass, wherein the discourse would have better befitted the mouths of boards and ruffians than the grave divines. Among them Bishop Neal, then Bishop of Rochester, a creature and favourite of the House of Suffolk, took up a learned discourse in the science of bordering how many degrees in that science must produce a nullity, wherein were so many beastly expressions, as for modesty's sake I will not recite them, being offensive to my very thoughts and memory. Aristotle's problems was a modest discourse to his, and he appeared to be better studied in that than in divinity, and to wind up his learned discourse concluded, all those met in this lord, meaning Essex, and this lady. The Archbishop of Canterbury Abbot, to his everlasting fame, mainly opposed all the proceedings and protested against them, for which he ever after lived in disgrace, excluded from the council table, and died in the disgrace of the king on earth, though in favour with the king of kings. Yet, forsooth, to make up the full measure of bordery, and to justify Neil's discourse that all things in the former marriage conduced to a nullity, a search must be made to find whether there had been a penetration, and a jury of grave matrons, were found fit for that purpose, with their spectacles ground to lessen, not to make the letter larger, who after their inspection gave their false verdict that she was intacta virgo, which was thought very strange, for the world took notice that her way was very near beaten, so plain as by regia via, and in truth so it was, and a way more common than that before Somerset did ever travel that way. Besides, the world took notice they too had long lived in adultery. Yet had this old kettle a trick for that also. The Lady of Essex, for modesty's sake, makes humble suit to the reverend bawdy bishops, who were also plotters in this stratagem, that she might not appear bare-faced for blushing, but desired to come veiled with a taffety over her face. This by all means was thought so reasonable for a pretty modest lady, that the bawdy bishops and purblind ladies, which had forgotten modesty themselves, could not think it worthy the denial. One mistress Fines, near kinswoman to old Kettle, was dressed up in the countess's clothes, 
at that time too young to be other than Burgo Intacta, though within two years after had the old ladies made their inspection, the orifice would not have appeared so small to have delivered such a verdict as they did, and a just one, upon their views. Though upon some of their knowledges it was not that lady they were to give verdict upon. If any make doubt of the truth of this story, the author delivers upon the reputation of a gentleman. He had it verbatim from a knight, otherwise of much honour, though the very dependency on that family may question it, which did usher the lady into the place of inspection, and hath told it often to his friends in mirth. Now is the nullity pronounced, and the marriage with Somerset with speed solemnised, for which they and the whole family of Suffolk paid dear in after-time, and had sour sauce to that sweet meat of their great son-in-law. And surely he was the most unfortunate man in that marriage, being as generally beloved for himself and disposition as hated afterwards for his linking himself in that family. For in all the time of this man's favour, before this marriage, he did nothing obnoxious to the state, nor any base thing for his private gain. But whether it was his own nature that curbed him, or that there was then a brave prince living and a noble queen that did awe him, we cannot so easily judge. Because after this marriage, and their death, he did many very ill things. In this favourite's flourishing time came over the Polsgrave to marry our king's daughter, which for the present gave much content, and with the general applause. Yet it proved a most unfortunate match to him and his posterity, and all Christendom. For his alliance with so many great princes put him on aspiring thoughts. And so ambitious was he as not to content himself with his hereditary patrimony of one of the greatest princes in Germany, but must aspire to a kingdom, believing that his great alliance would carry him through any enterprise or bring him off with honour, in both which he failed being cast out of his own country with shame, and he and his ever after living upon the devotion of other princes. But had his father-in-law spent half the money in swords he did in words, for which he was but scorned, it had kept him in his own inheritance, and saved much Christian blood since shed. But whilst he, being wholly addicted to peace, spent much treasure in sending costly ambassadors to treat his enemies, which he esteemed friends, might have sent armies with a less charge to conquer, so that it may be concluded that this then thought the most happy match in Christendom was the greatest unhappiness to Christendom themselves and posterity. And as if to foretell the sad event, presently after the gallantry and triumphing of that marriage, the kingdom was clad all in mourning for the sad obsequies of that most hopeful Prince Henry, who died not without vehement suspicion of poison, and I wish I could say but suspicion only, but our future discourse will tell you otherwise. He was only showed to this nation as the land of Canaan was to Moses, to look on, not to enjoy. We did indeed joy in that happiness we expected in him, but God found us so unthankful, and took so lightly the death of that ever-famous Queen Elizabeth, as he intended to make us an example of scorn now that were formerly of all glory. His death was foretold by one Bruce, a most famous astrologer of the Scottish nation, for which the Earl of Salisbury, a great statesman, caused him to be banished, who left this farewell with the Earl that it should be too, too true, yet his lordship should not live to see it, the Earl dying in May, the Prince in November following. 
to the infinite grief of all the kingdom. But the Earl of Somerset and family of Howards, who by his death thought themselves secured from all future dangers, for he, being a prince of an open heart, hating all baseness, would often say, if ever he were king, he would not leave one of that family to piss against a wall. This brave prince being dead, Somerset and that faction bear all down before them, disposing of all offices. Yet Somerset never turned any out, as did the succeeding favourite, but places being void he disposed of them, and who would give most was the word, yet not by Somerset himself, but by his lady and her family. For he was naturally of a noble disposition, that it may be justly said of him, that never could be said of any before, or ever will be of any after him. He never got suit for himself, or friends that was burdensome to the commonwealth, no monopolies, no impositions. Yet in his time, and by his favour, though not for his use, were brought into the court two mean fellows, grand projectors, the one Ingram, an ordinary waiter of the customs, the other Cranfield, an apprentice, who had served three broken citizens. And it is probable by his wit and honesty he might thrive by them all and lay that for his first a foundation of his future projecting, the one a creature of Northampton's, the other of the house of Suffolk, and these like ill birds defiled their own nests, and discovered the secrets of the custom-house. Yet their projects seemed for the king's profit only, though much water ran by his mill, and Suffolk did very well lick his own fingers. For, Salisbury being dead, Suffolk was treasurer of the proper place for customs, and his son-in-law, Chamberlain and favourite. And then what could not they two do? Yet Somerset ever kept them but like projectors, which after favourites raised to the degrees of nobility, only Suffolk by Somerset's power made Ingram a cofferer of the king's house, which was the first apparent step to Somerset's downfall. For however the king made fair semblance to maintain that act, yet made he the Earl of Kelly his instrument to set the officers of his household to petition him against it and ever from the king's own directions to take their instructions, in which one of the principle given was not to seek to Somerset upon any terms, nay, to deny to accept his favour, though offered to disannul his own act, but to carry it with an high hand against Somerset, by which assurance was given of prevailing. Here was pretty juggling, the court being then but an academy of jugglers. Somerset did often court the officers, to make him that Achilles his weapon that could wound and heal again, but was entertained with scorn. Yet ambition so dazzled his eyes, he could not see the precipice on which he stood ready for his downfall. For surely no astrologers could have given him truer notions of his ruin than this. Cranfield, the other projector, soared higher, though not in Somerset's time could he have his feathers imped. But Buckingham after did so imp them, that Cranfield endeavoured to pull out his, and gave him the first affront. By this you may observe how the times altered from better to worse, and so fittest for worthless men. For now began to appear a glimmering of a new favourite, one Mr. George Villiers, a younger son by a second venter of an ancient knight in Leicestershire. As I take it, his father of an ancient family, his mother but of a mean, and a waiting gentlewoman, whom the old man fell in love with and married, by whom he had three sons, all raised to the nobility by means of their brother favourite. This gentleman was come also but newly from travel, and at that time did believe it a great fortune to marry a daughter of Sir Roger Astor's, 
and in truth it was the height of his ambition, and for that only end was an hanger-on upon the court. The gentlewoman loved him so well, as could all his friends have made her for her great fortune, but an hundred marks jointure, she had married him presently in despite of all her friends, and no question would have had him without any jointure at all. But as the fates would have it, before the closing up of this match, the king cast a glancing eye towards him, which was easily perceived by such as observed their prince's humour, and then the match was laid aside, some assuring him a greater fortune was coming towards him. Then one gave him his place of cup-bearer, that he might be in the king's eye. Another sent to his mercer and tailor to put good clothes on him. A third to his sempster for curious linen and all as prefacive insinuations to obtain offices upon his future rise. Then others took upon them to be his bravos, to undertake his quarrels upon affronts put on him by Somerset's faction. So all hands helped to the piecing up this new favourite. Then began the king to eat abroad, who formerly used to eat in his bedchamber, or if by chance supped in his bedchamber after supper would come forth to see pastimes and fooleries in which Sir Edward Zouch, Sir George Goring, and Sir John Finnett were the chief and master fools, and surely this fooling got them more than any other's wisdom, far above them in desert. Zouch's part it was to sing bawdy songs and tell bawdy tales, Finnett's to compose these songs. Then was a set of fiddlers brought to court on purpose for this fooling, and Goring was master of the game for fooleries sometimes presenting David Droman and Archie Armstrong the king's fool on the back of the other fools to tilt at one another till they fell together by the ears. Sometimes the property was presented by them in antique dances. But Sir John Millicent, who was never known before, was commended for notable fooling, and so was he indeed the best extemporary fool of them all. With this jollity was this favourite ushered in. This made the house of Suffolk fret, and Somerset carried himself now more proudly and his bravados, ever quarrelling with the others, which, by his office of Lord Chamberlain, for a while carried it. But Somerset, using of Sir Ralph Winwood, whom himself brought in for a secretary of state, in so scornful a manner, he having but only the title, the earl himself keeping the seals and doing the business, made Winwood endeavour to ruin him, who soon got an opportunity thereto by frequenting the Countess of Shrewsbury, then prisoner in the tower, who told Winwood on a time that Overbury was poisoned, which she had so understood from Sir Jervis Elwes, who did labour by her means to deal with her two sons-in-law, Arundel and Pembroke, Winwood also being great with that faction, that when it came into question he might save his own stake, who truly was no otherwise guilty, but that he did not discover it at Weston's first disclosing it, he being keeper of the prison, so by inference his not disclosing it was Overbury's death. And had he revealed it then, I dare say he had been brought into the star chamber for it and undone, for yet was not the time fit for discovery. Winwood, it was thought, acquainted the king with it, knowing how willingly he would have been rid of Somerset. Yet the king durst not bring it in question, nor any question ever would have been, had not Somerset sought to cross him in his passion of love to his new favourite in which the king was more impatient than any woman to enjoy her love. Not long after, Thrumball, agent at Brussels, had, by an apothecary's boy, one Reeve, after an apothecary himself in London, and died very lately, 
gotten hold of this poisoning business. For Reeve, having under his master made some of those desperate medicines, either run away, or else his master sent him out of the way, and fell in company of Thrumble's servants at Brussels, to whom he revealed it. They to their master, who, examining the boy, discovered the truth. Thrumble presently wrote to Secretary Winwood he had business of consequence to discover, but would not send it, therefore desired license to come over. The king would not yield to his return, but willed him to send an express. That Thrumble utterly refused, and very wisely, for had anything appeared under his hand, the boy might have died or run away, and then had he made himself the author of that which the courtesy of another must have justified. The king, being of a longing disposition, rather than he would not know, admitted Thrumble's return, and now they had good testimony by the apothecary, who revealed Weston, Mrs. Turner, and Franklin to be principal agents. Yet this, being near the time of progress, was not stirred in till about Michaelmas following. Yet Winwood did now carry himself in a braving way of contestation against Somerset, struck in with the faction of Villiers now on progress. The king he went westward, where he was feasted at Cranbourne by a son-in-law of that family, at Lulworth and Bindon by the Lord Walden, at Charlton by Sir Thomas Howard, and everywhere nothing but one faction braving the other. Then was the king feasted at Purbeck by the Lord Hatton, who was of the contrary faction, and at a jointure house of Sir George Villiers' mother called Gottlich, where he was magnificently entertained. After all this feasting, homeward came the king, who desired by all means to reconcile this clashing between his declining and rising favourite. To which end, at Lulworth, the king employed Sir Humphrey May, a great servant to Somerset and a wise servant to Villiers, but with such instructions as if it came from himself, and Villiers had order presently after Sir Humphrey May's return to present himself and service to Somerset. My lord, said he, Sir George Villiers will come to you to offer his service and desire to be your creature, and therefore refuse him not, embrace him, and your lordship shall still stand a great man, though not the sole favourite. My lord seemed averse. Sir Humphrey then told him in plain terms that he was sent by the king to advise it, and that Villiers would come to him to cast himself into his protection, to take his rise under the shadow of his wings. Sir Humphrey May was not parted from my lord half an hour, but in comes Sir George Villiers, and used these very words, My lord, I desire to be your servant and your creature, and shall desire to take my court preferment under your favour and your lordship shall find me as faithful a servant unto you as ever did serve you. My lord returned this quick and short answer. I will none of your service, nor shall you have any of my favour. I will, if I can, break your neck, and of that be confident. This was but a harsh compliment, and savoured more of spirit than wisdom. And since that time, breaking each other's necks was their aims, and it's verily believed had Somerset complied with Villiers, Overbury's death had still lain raked up in his own ashes. But God, who will never suffer murder to go unpunished, will have what he will, maugre all the wisdom of the world. To Windsor doth the king return to end his progress, from thence to Hampton Court, then to Whitehall, and shortly after to Royston to begin his winter journey. And now begins the game to be played, in which Somerset must be the loser, 
the cards being shuffled, cut, and dealt between the king and Sir Edward Cook, chief justice, whose daughter Turbeck Villiers, his brother, had married, or was to marry, and therefore a fit instrument to ruin Somerset, and Secretary Winwood, these all played. The stake, Somerset's life, and his ladies, and their fortunes, and the family of Suffolk. Some of them played booty, and in truth the game was not played above board. The day the king went from Whitehall to Theobald's, and so to Royston, the king sent for all the judges, his lords and servants in settling him, where, kneeling down in the midst of them, he used these very words. My lords the judges, it is lately come to my hearing that you have now in examination a business of poisoning. Lord, in what a most miserable condition shall this kingdom be, the only famous nation for hospitality in the world, if our tables should become such a snare as none could eat without danger of life, and that Italian custom should be introduced amongst us. Therefore, my lords, I charge you, as you will answer it at that great and dreadful day of judgment, that you examine it strictly without favour, affection, or partiality. And if you shall spare any guilty of this crime, God's curse light upon you and your posterity. And if I spare any that are found guilty, God's curse light on me and my posterity for ever. But how this dreadful thunder-curse or imprecation was performed shall be showed hereafter. And I pray God the effect be not felt amongst us even at this day, as it hath been, I fear, on that virtuous lady Elizabeth and her children. For God treasures up such imprecations and deprecations, and pours them out when a nation least dreams, even when they cry, Peace, peace to their souls. And it may well be at this time, our other sins concurring, that he is pouring them out upon king, judges, and the whole state. It appears how unwilling the king was to ruin Somerset, a creature of his own making. But immedicabile volnus ense rescindendum est. Grace was offered by the king, had he had grace to have apprehended it. The king with this took his farewell for a time of London, and was accompanied with Somerset to Royston, where no sooner he brought him, but instantly took his leave, little imagining what viper lay amongst the herbs. Nor must I forget to let you know how perfect the king was in the art of dissimulation, or, to give it his own phrase, kingcraft. The Earl of Somerset, to his apprehension, never parted from him with more seeming affection than at this time, when intentionally the king had so exposed him to Cook's dressing that he knew Somerset should never see him more. And had you seen that seeming affection as the author himself did? he would rather have believed he was in his rising than setting. The earl, when he kissed his hand, the king hung about his neck, slabbering his cheeks, saying, For God's sake, when shall I see thee again? On my soul I shall neither eat nor sleep until you come again. The earl told him on Monday, this being on the Friday, For God's sake let me, said the king, shall I, shall I, then lolled about his neck, then for God's sake give thy lady this kiss for me, in the same manner at the stairs head, at the middle of the stairs, and at the stairs foot. The earl was not in his coach when the king used these very words. In the hearing of four servants, of whom one was Somerset's great creature, and of the bedchamber, who reported it instantly to the author of this history, 
I shall never see his face more. I appeal, therefore, to the reader whether this motto of Qui nescit dissimulare nescit regnare was not as well performed in this passage as his Beati Pacifici in the whole course of his life. And his love to the latter made him to be beaten with his own weapon in the other by all princes and states that had to do with him. But before Somerset's approach to London, his countess was apprehended. At his arrival, himself. And the king, being that night at supper, said to Sir Thomas Monson, My Lord Chief Justice hath sent for you. He asked the king when he should wait on him again, who replied, You may come when you can. And, as in the story of Byron and many others, there have been many foolish observations as presage, so was there in this gentleman, who was the king's master falconer, and in truth such a one as no prince in Christendom had, for what flights other princes had, he would excel them for his master, in which one was at the kite. The French sending over his falconers to show that sport, his master falconer lay long here, but could not kill one kite, ours being more magnanimous than the French kite. Sir Thomas Monson desired to have that flight in all exquisiteness, and to that end was at a thousand pound charge in Gerfalcon's for that flight. In all that charge he never had but one cast would perform it, and those had killed nine kites, which were as many as they were put off unto, not any one of them escaping. Whereupon the Earl of Pembroke, with all the lords, desired the king but to walk out of Royston Town's End to see that flight which was one of the most stateliest flights of the world, for the high mountee. The king went unwillingly forth, the flight was showed, but the kite went to such a mountee, and the hawk after, as all the field lost sight of kite and hawk and all. And neither kite nor hawk were either seen or heard of to this present, which made all the court conjecture it a very ill omen. So that you see, the plot was so well laid as they could be all within the toil at one instant, not knowing of each other. End of section five.